invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, we're going to be reading from these verses in just a moment, Acts chapter 16, I want to look, uh, at least begin with a story that we find in Acts, specifically when it comes to uh, someone's conversion. There are many questions, many appropriate questions when it comes to conversion. What differences do we need to talk about? What exactly does the person who we're evangelizing to need to know? How urgent should this be? Maybe how fast is too fast? Um, And again, I would say that there, there are many important things to talk about and many things that are indeed appropriate at some point. But I think in Acts chapter 16... In verses 25 through 34, where we find this story of the Philippian jailer, I just think that we we find where we must start. Beginning in chapter 25 of Acts chapter 16, you see that right before this, the context is Paul and Silas have been put into prison because what they're doing is just spreading the gospel, the kingdom uh, of Christ, and preaching his name. And so because of the, the, the consequences of that is they're put in prison. And so in verse 25, it says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and Uh, and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now here's just a a very short passage of just one conversion that you find in the book of Acts. Every conversion that you find in the book of Acts is just fascinating and and exciting. And even this one you see with the Philippian jailer. I I think this is one of the uh, more exciting ones because of everything that you see take place with an earthquake. and It doesn't seem like it's just Paul and Silas, but everyone has stayed. And maybe because of their example. But, but the thing that I really want to focus on is how they evangelize to the Philippian jailer, who is not a Jew, doesn't have that religious background. As they talk to him, it doesn't say that, that they give a comprehensive history of world religions or maybe a detailed discussion on why we don't use instruments in worship or maybe the need to use church funds in the prescribed way. Those are all necessary. Those are all conversations that we must have. But this is not where the Philippian jailer begins. Notice that his conversion, as I think all conversions must start, starts with a willing heart. It starts with the need for God in our lives and how we must react in recognition of that fact. That we are not in a good position before him and we need his salvation. We need his word to uh, get over uh, this this position that we this bad position that we have before him and get into a relationship with him. 
the, I think the Philippian jailer is a case study of, of two things. What the main focus should be from a potential convert, someone who's actually seeking uh, the, the gospel, and what it should be from the one evangelizing to them. So those are the two points that we want to look at tonight. And we begin with the convert. We begin with the Philippian jailer asking what I would say is the right question. I really, truly believe that the heart of conversion is one who is willing to ask this question before anything else. As you see in Acts chapter 16 and verse 30, what must I do to be saved? I, I really think that, that is the heart of the matter. And I think that ultimately if people do not have this already set in their mind, this, this question in their mind, that, and, and if, if they're not this uh, urgent like the Philippian jailer about the fact, I'm not sure that someone is ready to become a Christian. It, it, this is urgent. The message is urgent, and the response is supposed to be as well. And, and you know, someone with the heart of conversion, they're never going to sound like when, when you tell them what the commands of Jesus are, the king, and when you tell them what our creator expects of us, you're never going to hear from this kind of heart, well, if I do become a Christian, will I have to be there every single service? Does that sound like a heart of conversion? Does that sound like the Philippian jailer? Who just says, what must I do to be saved? No, it doesn't sound anything like that. Does it sound like someone who's going to, you know, hear about some of the commands that Jesus gives them if they're going to be a part of his kingdom? Would someone say, well, if I become a Christian, how active am I expected by everyone else to be in the church? It's not going to sound like that either. No, what a heart of, true heart of conversion, the kind of heart that God wants is the one who first says, what must I do to be saved? Now, all that just to say, you know, just speaking the words doesn't make it sincere. And I would say apathetically asked, it means nothing. And a couple of examples you see of this, in Luke chapter 10, in verse 25, you have a lawyer that comes to Jesus, and he asks him, what must I do, what, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus even gives him an answer. They, they, they talk there for a while. You see something similar in Luke chapter 18. Each case you have a lawyer and then you have a ruler who comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus very openly and very honestly gives them the answer. Now in each case, it's going to be difficult. The ruler, he's going to have to give up the riches that he has accrued in his life. And the, the, the lawyer, well... You see, there's that parable of, of you know, the, the, the neighbor of the good Samaritan. And the point of that is Jesus says, you need to be the neighbor that the Samaritan was. And after he goes through all of that, it doesn't seem like the lawyer really has a good response. And even, even before he gets to the parable, he tries to justify himself saying, who is my neighbor? He acts like he doesn't get it. And so Jesus gets even more specific with the parable. And, and so... In each case, what you find is these men, they were only willing to go so far. Now, the lawyer, I don't really think, was honest at all, obviously trying to justify himself. But the ruler, I think there was a little bit of sincerity there. Because it says that he goes away sorrowful when he hears the word. I think there was a degree of he wanted to know what he had to do. And he even had some level of, of, some level of resolve saying, I, I, I do want to try and do it. Ultimately, he was not willing to go as far as Jesus commanded him to go. They wanted God ultimately to submit to their standard, not the other way around. They expected God to bow to their standard instead of them bowing to his standard and, and that being the end of it. You know, sometimes we worry about how we're going to study with people because sometimes things come up throughout the gospel as we're reading through it. And, and you know, maybe 
maybe the person we're talking to understands what it's going to take to become a Christian just initially. And they even kind of acknowledge that. They say, well, I recognize, I want to become a Christian. I really do want to become a Christian. But, you know, God has said this about maybe marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so I'm just not ready yet. I really do want it, but I'm just not ready. Let me tell you something. If someone says, if they understand what God's word has, has decreed, what God has asked of all who would come to him, if they understand, they, they can't say, oh, I really want to become a Christian. Because what you find is, time and time again, those that want to become Christians do. It's not so difficult that, that you know, only a specific group of you know, very strong individuals could even attain that, that title of being a Christian. No, it's simple enough that the lowliest of people can become a Christian. It's difficult because people aren't willing to let things go. That is the main problem. And so people can say all they want. Well, I really do want to become a Christian. But they don't mean it if they understand what the Word says and, and decide to reject it anyways. So it's not just asking the question, but it is genuinely seeking to submit to the answer. Now, again, you see this in Acts chapter 16 uh, in verses 30 through 33. The Philippian jailer just asking the question, clearly, this is not the jailer, you know, just trying to go through the motions or say something that he thinks will be just, uh, you know, almost a, just a mere verbal incantation to a degree. He means it when he says, I want to do whatever I have to. And, and it says that very hour. Again, the gospel message has so much to do with the urgency and especially when it comes to our response to it. The Philippian jailer didn't try to give any excuses. He just bowed to whatever God said he must do. That doesn't sound like someone who says, you know, I, I know what this says. I do need it. I understand that. But I'm still so young. I have plenty of time to live on this earth. I don't really need to worry about this until I get older. I mean, first of all, it just displays an incredible absurd level of, of just arrogance about life because you, you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. You have no idea what's going to happen in the next hour. But, but beyond that, does that sound like someone who has that same sense of urgency as the Philippian jailer? Another part of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, you find that th- there are several people, many, many, many people, thousands of people at the day of Pentecost, and even thousands of people that are listening to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. And what is the message? The Christ that you all have been waiting for, the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, he finally came. It was Jesus of Nazareth. You didn't want him, and so you killed him. You crucified him. You did it. That is a pretty difficult message to hear because it was true. They had, they had been the hands that put Jesus on the cross. And they understood what Peter was saying. But, and how do they come to him? In verse 37 of Acts chapter uh, 2, what must we do? And it says in that passage that 3,000 souls were saved that day. I don't think the Holy Spirit was exaggerating. I don't think that, that, you know, he was just saying, well, I mean, it was a pretty good show. It was a pretty good, uh, you know, group of people that came together, so we're just going to put a good number that I truly believe that 3,000 people were saved that day. I think that 3,000 people knew what they were doing. Does that mean they knew everything? I don't think that the 3,000 people there that became Christians even knew maybe as much as the, the 12 disciples. But I will tell you one thing. They definitely had the willingness to learn what, everything that they knew and a willingness to grow past that maybe spiritual infancy. 
They were absolutely willing to grow. And so it doesn't sound like people who were picking and choosing what they wanted to take. The gospel message had been presented to them, and even though it was difficult, they accepted the call. And that's a noble thing. Because it wouldn't be easy to say, you are the man, like Nathan says to David. But they accepted it. And because of that fact that they were willing to do, even though it was difficult, they had a true heart of conversion. They were saved that day. And what a beautiful notion to have so many saved uh, just because of the gospel message. You, you even go to Acts chapter 22 and verse 10. As Paul is recounting his conversion that takes place in Acts chapter 9, as he's just kind of going through the story once more, we get a little bit of more of information. But when, after he's heard the voice of Jesus, after he's seen this vision, he's blinded, he's led, he's led by others to his destination, and what does he do? He waits for three days, and he's not just sitting there soaking the whole time, he's waiting specifically to hear what the command of the Lord is. Now, he is not waiting, you know, breathing murder for all of the church, and, and, and he's not, you know, on the same mission that he was on the way to Damascus. Now, it's completely changed. I, I want to know, what does my Lord Jesus have for me to do. And boy, does he obey. There are several things that a certain disciple named Ananias tells Paul he's going to have to do from the words of God. He says, you are going to do much. But one of the main things he tells him to do is how to be saved. He comes in in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. And wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul waited for three days because he wanted to know what was required of him. That is a heart of conversion. Someone who's on the edge of their seat just waiting to know what they, what they can do, what, they are, are, what God wants them to do and desires for them to do. Not someone who's waiting on the edge of their seat to just figure out you know, how quick they can get out the door. And never have to look at what the gospel message has to say. Never even have to hear, as we were talking about this morning. These examples right here, that, these are examples of people who had the proper heart that God wants and that really we need to focus on um, if we want to become a Christian. Now, on the other end of that, particularly when you think about talking to people about the gospel message, I really want to just discuss a few points that I think are crucial, uh, particularly when you think about this story, uh, this kind of as a theme with the Philippian jailer. What should we be focusing on when someone comes to us and they say, I want to become a Christian? What are a few main things that we need to press on them as we are talking about what the gospel means and what our relationship to it is supposed to be? First of all, and this is just obvious from the things that we've been discussing so far, we must emphasize complete subjection, submission, subjection. We must emphasize that over and over and over again. And we cannot settle for less. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28 in verse 18 in this great commission. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. He is the king. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This, is, this, is too, this can't be overstated. The most foundational thing that must be pressed on everyone's heart who wants to become a Christian is, are you willing to be like the Philippian jailer and say, sincerely, I'm, whatever the Lord requires of me, that I will do. And whatever he tells me to be rid of, I'll be rid of it. 
That, that's the kind of devotion that we need to be talking about. Because if someone, even, if, if someone is not ready to have that kind of devotion, clearly they're not ready to become a Christian. They are not ready to be a part of this kingdom. And Jesus makes that case all the way throughout his ministry. That you need to count the cost. Because if you begin the work and you abandon it, it's going to be worse for you. And so we need to press on this. I, I had the, the privilege and the blessing to be able to baptize a young lady a, a couple years ago. We had, um, at the beginning, I didn't really uh, feel so good about it because I had just taught a lesson about fear and the fear of the Lord and how Christians are not supposed to have a spirit of fear. But at the end, I really honed in on the fact that if you don't have God, you fear. And there's no escape from it. And you should feel the walls closing in. And, and, and so af after this lesson, after it had been done, we were all kind of socializing and talking to, and everyone was, and then she comes up and she's just bawling. She is in, in complete tears, an utter mess. And for a second I was like, oh, oh great, what, am I, <laughs> what did I do? Um, but she said that the message affected her, and not because of you know, my ability, clearly, but because of the message that was taught, the gospel. It affected her. And you know what she said? I, I am afraid because I know that if I died tonight, I would not be in a good place with God. Let me tell you, that's, that's kind of a negative, that's kind of a more negative thought, but that is the appropriate thought that one should have if they're not a Christian, if they haven't been washed of their sins. That's exactly the kind of heart someone should have they need to recognize the position that they're in before God, that they are helpless, and he is the only one that can provide the answer, the salvation. And as we, as we talked through this, you know, some people would have heard some of the questions I was asking her, and they would have thought that I was trying to dissuade her from becoming a Christian. And, you know, that, that wasn't my main goal, but to a degree, I kind of was. And I, and I even told her, I was up front, I said, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to you know, take this opportunity away from you, but you need to understand that God he doesn't just want people to obey him and become Christians off of just some, you know, whimsical, you know, nice emotional high moment. Or because it's going to look good or because at the time she was dating a Christian boy who had been having studies with her about this. And we talked through those things. I asked her a pointed question. I said, okay, but what happens if you and he break up? Well, are you going to stop coming to church? Are you going to stop worshiping? Are you going to stop doing what God tells you to do, what we've discussed? She said, no, of course not. And, you know, we asked a few more questions. Because of these studies that she had been having uh, with her boyfriend, it had caused some conflict between her and her parents because they didn't like the fact that she was going to church. They didn't like the things that she was hearing from the Bible. And it caused great conflict. And I'd been kind of privy to that throughout the week. And I asked her, you know, what happens if you go home and they have a strong issue with this? She says, I, I need to be made right with God. I said, I don't think this is going to happen, but let me just ask you one more question. What happens if you go home, you tell them that you've been baptized, and they kick you out? Are you going to try and compromise and, and, and go back on this, or are you going to accept the consequences? And she, she said, I'm willing to accept any consequences. I just need to be saved tonight. And after, I, 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 with great with a big smile on my face and tears in my eyes, I said, let's get it done. Especially when it comes to a group of young people, sometimes people worry about maybe the emotional high getting into their heads and thinking, oh, this looks good, and so let's all do it. That was not this case. She had a heart of conversion. 
She had a heart like the Philippian jailer. She was broken to the core, and she acknowledged that Jesus was the only one that could save her. She acknowledged that he was the only one that had the answer. She wasn't saying things like, well, do I have to do this? She didn't even care about that. She was more focused on and only focused on what does he require of me? (laughs) It's beautiful. And every time I think about it, I start to get tears in my eyes. Because that is the heart of conversion. That's the heart that all of us should have. And when we settle for less, we are compromising. And secondly, we're making their salvation less sure. And so it must start with complete subjection. Now, for the last few moments, I just want to make a few points that I think are are some helpful things to think about as we are trying to press this notion in. And as we are trying to talk more about the gospel to people. If this is where we start... I think it will just take care of any potential future issues that may arise throughout future studies or maybe questions that may come up sometime in the future. Because, you know, when you talk about conversions and all the way throughout the book of Acts, seeing all these people becoming Christians, not every passage uh, of conversion tells what all we must do. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, just with the Philippian jailer alone, notice that there's no talk of repentance or confession. None. But does that mean that God does not require that of us to become a Christian? Oh, clearly not. We have plenty of examples. Think about Paul. The only talk, the only discussion in, his, in the story of his conversion is about evangelism and baptism. It says nothing about faith. Does that mean that Paul was saved without faith? Oh, may it never be. And even he would say those words uh, all the way throughout the New Testament. And so... I go through some of these things just to say, this kind of heart, the heart that says, I'm willing to do whatever God requires of me, it's not going to be a problem if they don't, maybe they won't know absolutely everything that a Christian, a mature Christian needs to end up knowing. But when it comes to those moments, when they ask those questions like, oh, well, you know what, why don't, why don't we use instruments? It's not going to be a problem. Because if they had the proper heart when they became a Christian, they're going to have that proper heart when they ask those questions. And when we come back to his word and we say, this is what God desires from us, they're going to say, that's that's all I needed to hear. And I love that. Don't you? Love that notion of, of someone having that kind of desire, just wanting to do whatever he requires. You could go to several other passages. There's one other that I had listed there in Luke chapter 12. There's a man that, while Jesus is speaking words of eternal life, he comes up and he says, Teacher, make sure that my brother divides the inheritance with me. It's like, oh man, you really have no idea the the gravity of what is being discussed right now. And Jesus goes through some, some instruction that he specifically needed and that all disciples of the kingdom needed. But then you get to verses 33 through 34, and what he says is, okay, you struggle with the greedy. This man truly did struggle with greediness. And so if you're greedy, what he says is you need to sell your possessions. Now, in Luke chapter 12, if that man sold all of his possessions, but did never confessed, never repented, never had any faith, to speak of, never was baptized, would we say that he was saved? No. No. There's instruction all the way throughout that we need to pick up on. And we need to, to, to apply to our lives as soon as we see it. Now, all that just to say, if we start from the notion that we are just trying and striving to do everything that makes God happy, that pleases the Lord... That will fix all of the potential questions one could ask. This is the same strategy I think that a lot of people have with kids. 
You know, kids, when they become Christians as teenagers, they certainly don't know everything. And when they come and ask these questions, we don't get super nervous and we don't get super, oh, oh no, I guess they're not a Christian. No, they're asking questions so they can learn. And hopefully, we've instilled that proper heart in them from a very young age before they ever became a Christian. And so when we come to these answers, they'll have the proper response. So we need to start there because it'll save us from any future uh, issues that may come up. I will just add to that, when it comes to evangelism, uh, and this is the the case whether you're preaching or in a Bible class or or when you're just talking one-on-one with somebody, it is very helpful to boil things down specifically to try and clarify. This is something that I try to work on more and more every single day. (laughs) I I really try to work on, uh, you know, making sure that I'm making the point as simply as possible and not confusing anything, not muddying the waters by extra things. It's hard. Let me tell you. I'll just be the first to tell you. It's hard. And I work on it every single day. But it is so incredibly helpful when we get to some level of mastery. Even if we're not a level of mastery, continue working on it. Because we want to make it as simple as possible. The gospel is already a difficult message to take in for, for many reasons. And so we want to make it as, as easy to understand as possible when someone comes to us in that way. But, you know, look over at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus, I think, gives us an example of just boiling things down. In verse 36 of Matthew chapter 22, there's a lawyer that comes up to him and says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, when you look at the entirety of the law, there is a lot more than just two things that God says, correct? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot more that God talks about. Just go to the book of Leviticus. There's plenty of things that you can see. And is Jesus saying, you just forget all of that? No. What he's doing is, is he's boiling things down. He's saying these are the two greatest commandments. You want to please God? You love him before everything else and you love your neighbor as yourself. And as we were just talking about, you start from that standpoint. Whatever question may come up, it's going to be answered quickly if we have the proper mindset. And so Jesus gives us an example of how to do this and how to do this well. Um, Making sure that we, you know, preach and teach certain points in a very easily uh, understandable way. Now, a few examples of this is, you know, when we extend the invitation... And, and when we talk to people about how to become a Christian, we often talk about those steps of salvation. And sometimes, you know, we, we talk about, you know, the five steps of salvation. And that's good. I think that that helps us focus in on some key aspects of what we see in conversion. Now, clearly, we're not saying that we just don't think about anything else. But what we're saying is, your question is, how do I become a Christian? And if the proper heart is there, then we can answer those questions. And when we do answer those questions and people hear it, and they seek to understand it, they will respond. And so it's helpful to boil those things down like that. And we do that all the time. Uh, you also see this when, we, when people try to make distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. When we talk about the differences between the New Testament and, and the Old Testament, you go to a passage like Hebrews chapter 7. We're not going to go there tonight, but Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 through 22, as you see on the chart, he talks all throughout the book of Hebrews about how this is a better covenant. And why is it? Because of Jesus we have a better sacrifice. We have a better high priest. We have a better law. And that's because it, you know, the old covenant was always pointing to Jesus. 
And so now we have the substance. And, and so we, it, it's good to make those distinctions because people may come up and try to use certain examples like, okay, but in the Old Testament they used instruments in worship. If we make this kind of distinction, we just boil things down and have already made the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We could just say, oh, but, but remember, we're under the law of Christ. We're not going back to the shadow. We're in the substance. Why would you want to go back to the shadow? And so it's helpful to make those distinctions. And we also can make that, if we've made that distinction, we can also talk about the application of there's no more divisions, whether you're talking about race, ethnicity, or any other thing. Now there's no longer Jew or Gentile. It is you are a son of Abraham if you've submitted yourself to Christ. So the lineage doesn't matter anymore. And that's important uh, to make that distinction so that you can get to that application. So we need to be able to think through things to clearly and simply uh, preach them and teach them to others. Now, with all that being said, there is danger in preaching rec recklessly. There needs to be thought behind this. And wisdom, biblical wisdom, must guide us in this. Just thinking about the examples we just talked about. In preaching about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we don't want to go so far in our language to basically have people come away with the notion that some of God's revelation is just unnecessary or unimportant or irrelevant. I, you know, I, I've heard even gospel preachers from time to time speak so harshly about the Old Testament. And basically, you know, people couldn't help but come away with the notion that, well, there's no point in even reading that. Well, God's revealed it for a reason, and so we're not going to look over that. The distinction must be made, but we can definitely go too far. And we don't ever want to say about any of God's word, it's irrelevant. That's dangerous territory. So we need to make the distinction, but make it carefully. Make it biblical. That's what we want to do. We don't want to add or take away when we boil things down. You know, we talked about the steps of salvation. This is one thing that I think can uh, become a hindrance when it comes to our evangelism because... <clears throat> You know, we can, we can talk so much about one thing or another, particularly about baptism. But let me tell you, if we talk about baptism only and never talk about the faith that one is supposed to have, that baptism is probably going to mean nothing. Because if they don't have the faith, all they've done is just get, you know, in a body of water for some random weird reason. They've only gotten wet. Nothing happened if the faith wasn't there. And so, yes, we boil things down, but if we don't do it, carefully and biblically and wisely, we can overemphasize one thing over another where God says, I, I wanted you to take it all in tandem. I want you to take everything and obey me. While this is helpful to boil things down, and I talk to people all the time about these steps of salvation, what we find all the way throughout the New Testament and specifically in the book of Acts, how you become a Christian. It's helpful to make these points. But let me tell you something. I want people to do far more than just five things. You can't be a devoted disciple of Christ if you, are, if you say, okay, well, I believed, I have confessed, I've repented, I've been baptized, like we were talking about earlier. I, I don't have to do anything else. Christ says you've got to be a neighbor. And even when he talks about that parable, the lawyer try, you know, tries to justify himself and everything. He's like, okay, well, who is my neighbor? I love that Jesus doesn't say this exactly is your neighbor. Even as he goes through the different people throughout the parable, what he says is you just be a neighbor. And so 
It's good to boil things down, but we need to be careful because we don't want to just say, okay, this is all you have to do, and you never have to think about anything else ever again. You, and I know that people would never try to suggest that, but it happens when we, over, when we overstate the case at times. And so we want to wisely preach the gospel and, and make sure that we are speaking only the words of life. So with all that being said, as we've talked about the kind of heart that is needed to become a Christian, the kind of heart that is expected from Christians, if you have become a Christian, you've been added to the kingdom, do you have this kind of heart? Do you still have it? If not, that's a problem. It may be that you became a Christian long ago or maybe not so long ago, but already that heart has waned, it has diminished. It may be that you just need to go back and remember what you were doing when you were baptized. Remember what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. He's talking to Christians and he's reminding them, do you know what you did when you were baptized? You entered into a marriage covenant with God. Remember what you were doing. And so it may be that you need to remember those vows that you made and remember that relationship, the strength of that relationship that you're supposed to have. If you are not a Christian, the main question is, are you willing to completely subject yourself to God? If he says to repent, are you willing to repent of whatever it is, fill in the blank, that he says you need to let go of? If he says that you need to be baptized, are you going to let the fact that maybe one of your family, one of your relatives wasn't baptized, are you going to let that get in the way? If he says that you need to be a neighbor, will you do it? And not, you know, go grasping for straws. Not just try to say, okay, but who is my neighbor? Are you just going to be a neighbor? If, you, if you're really willing to obey all that God has commanded you, if you could say yes to all these things, ask Jesus one more question. God, Jesus commanded us to come and be a part of his kingdom. He extended an invitation long ago that remains alive and well to this day. Come, ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's a commandment. So if you are really willing to subject yourself to the king, are you ready to say yes to that invitation? So if you are subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please let your need be made known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.